Chapter 9, Section 2 of The Promise of American Life by Herbert Crowley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by The Progressing America Project. Chapter 9, Section 2 Nationality and Centralization. The federal political organization has always tended to confuse to the American mind the relation between democracy and nationality. The nation as a legal body was, of course, created by the Constitution, which granted to the central government certain specific powers and responsibilities, and which almost to the same extent diminished the powers and the responsibilities of the separate states. Consequently, to the great majority of Americans the process of increasing nationalization has a tendency to mean merely an increase in the functions of the central government. For the same reason, the affirmation of a constructive relation between the national and the democratic principles is likely to be interpreted merely as an attempt on the grounds of an abstract theory to limit state government and to disparage states' rights. Such an interpretation, however, would be essentially erroneous. It would be based upon the very idea which I have been continually protesting, the idea that the American nation, instead of embodying a living formative political principle, is merely the political system created by the federal constitution, and it would end in the absurd conclusion that the only way in which the promise of American democracy can be fulfilled would be by the abolition of American local political institutions. The nationalizing of American political, economic, and social life means something more than federal centralization, and something very different therefrom. To nationalize a people has never meant merely to centralize their government. Little by little a thoroughly national political organization has come to mean, in Europe, an organization which combined effective authority with certain responsibilities to the people. But the national interest has been just as likely to demand decentralization as it has to demand centralization. The Prussia of Frederick the Great, for instance, was over-centralized, and the restoration of the national vitality, at which the Prussian government aimed after the disasters of 1806, necessarily took the form of reinvigorating the local members of the national body. In this and many similar instances the national interest and welfare was the end, and the greater or smaller amount of centralized government merely the necessary machinery. The process of centralization is not, like the process of nationalization, an essentially formative and enlightening political transformation. When a people are being nationalized, their political, economic, and social organization or policy is being coordinated with their actual needs and their moral and political ideals. Governmental centralization is to be regarded as one of the many means which may or may not be taken in order to effect this purpose. Like every other special aspect of the national organization, it must be justified by its fruits. There is no presumption in its favor. Neither is there any general presumption against it. Whether a given function should or should not be exercised by the central government in a federal system is, from the point of view of political logic, a matter of expediency, with the burden of proof resting on those who propose to alter any existing constitutional arrangement. It may be affirmed, consequently, without paradox, that among those branches of the American national organization which are greatly in need of nationalizing is the central government. Almost every member of the American political body has been at one time or another, or in one way or another, perverted to the service of special interests. The state governments and the municipal administrations have sinned more in this respect than the central government, 
but the central government itself has been a grave sinner. The federal authorities are responsible for the prevailing policy in respect to military pensions, which is one of the most flagrant crimes ever perpetuated against the national interest. The federal authorities, again, are responsible for the existing tariff schedules, which benefit a group of special interests at the expense of the national welfare. The federal authorities, finally, are responsible for the Sherman Antitrust Law, whose existence on the statute books is a fatal bar to the treatment of the problem of corporate aggrandizement from the standpoint of genuinely national policy. Those instances might be multiplied, but they suffice to show that the ideal of a constructive relation between the American national and democratic principles does not imply that any particular piece of legislation or policy is national because it is federal. The federal no less than the state governments has been the victim of special interests, and when a group of state or city officials effectively assert the public interest against the private interests, either of the machine or of the local corporations, they are noting just as palpably, if not just as comprehensively, for the national welfare, as if their work benefited the whole American people. The process of nationalization in its application to American political organization means that political power shall be distributed among the central, state, and municipal officials in such a manner that it can be efficiently and responsibly exerted in the interest of those affected by its action. Be it added, however, in the same breath, that under existing conditions and simply as a matter of expediency, the national advance of the American democracy does demand an increasing amount of centralized action and responsibility. In what respect and for what purposes an increased federal power and responsibility is desired will be considered in a subsequent chapter. In this connection, it is sufficient to insist that a more scrupulous attention to existing federal responsibilities and the increase of their number and scope is the natural consequence of the increasing concentration of American industrial, political, and social life. American government demands more rather than less centralization, merely and precisely because of the growing centralization of American activity. The state governments, either individually or by any practicable methods of cooperation, are not competent to deal effectively in the national interest and spirit with the grave problems created by the aggrandizement of corporate and individual wealth and the increasing classification of the American people. They have, no doubt, an essential part to play in the attempted solution of these problems, and there are certain aspects to the whole situation which the American nation, because of its federal organization, can deal with much more effectually than can a rigidly centralized democracy like France. But the amount of responsibility in respect to fundamental national problems, which, in law, almost as much as in practice, is left to the states, exceeds the responsibility which the state governments are capable of efficiently redeeming. They are attempting, or neglecting, a task which they cannot be expected to perform with any efficiency. The fact that the states fail, properly to perform certain essential functions such as maintaining order or administering justice, is no sufficient reason for depriving them thereof. Functions which should be bestowed upon the central government are not those which the states happen to perform badly. They are those which the states, even with the best will in the world, cannot be expected to perform satisfactorily, and among these functions the regulation of commerce, the organization of labor, and the increasing control over property in the public interest, are assuredly to be included. The best friends of local government in this country 
are those who seek to have its activity confined with the limits of possible efficiency, because only in case its activity is so confined, can the states continue to remain an essential part of a really efficient and well-coordinated national organization. Proposals to increase the powers of the central government are, however, rarely treated on their merits. They are opposed by the majority of American politicians and newspapers as an unqualified evil. Any attempt to prove that the existing distribution of responsibility is necessarily fruitful of economic and political abuses, and that an increase of centralized power offers the only chance of eradicating these abuses, is treated as irrelevant. It is not a question of the expediency of a specific proposal, because from the traditional point of view, any change in the direction of increased centralization would be a violation of American democracy. Centralization is merely a necessary evil, which has been carried as far as it should, and which cannot be carried any further, without undermining the foundations of the American system. Thus, the familiar theory of many excellent American Democrats is rather that of a contradictory than a constructive relation between the democratic and the national ideals. The process of nationalization is perverted by them into a matter merely of centralization, but the question of a fundamental relation between nationality and democracy is raised by their attitude, because the reasons they advance against increasingly centralized authority would, if they should continue to prevail, definitely and absolutely forbid a gradually improving coordination between American political organization and American national economic needs or moral and intellectual ideals. The conception of democracy out of which the supposed contradiction between the democratic and national ideals issues is the great enemy of the American national advance, and is, for that reason, the great enemy of the real interests of democracy. To be sure, any increase in centralized power and responsibility, expedient or inexpedient, is injurious to certain aspects of traditional American democracy. But the fault in that case lies with the democratic tradition, and the erroneous and misleading tradition must yield before the march of a constructive national democracy. The national advance will always be impeded by these misleading and erroneous ideas, and, what is more, it always should be impeded by them, because at bottom ideas of this kind are merely an expression of the fact that the average American individual is morally and intellectually inadequate to a serious and consistent conception of his responsibilities as a Democrat. An American national democracy must always prove its right to a further advance, not only by the development of a policy and method adequate for the particular occasion, but by its ability to overcome the inevitable opposition of selfish interests and erroneous ideas. The logic of its position makes it the aggressor, just as the logic of its opponent's position ties them to a negative and protesting or merely insubordinate part. If the latter should prevail, their victory would become tantamount to national dissolution, either by putrefaction, by revolution, or by both. Under the influence of certain practical demands, an increase has already taken place in the activity of the federal government. The increase has not gone as far as governmental efficiency demands, but it has gone far enough to provoke outbursts of protest and anguish from the old-fashioned Democrats. They profess to see the approaching extinction of the American democracy in what they call the drift toward centralization. Such calamitous predictions are natural, but they are nonetheless absurd. The drift of American politics, its instinctive and unguided movement, is almost wholly along the habitual road, 
and any effective increase of federal centralization can be imposed only by the most strenuous efforts, by one of the biggest sticks which has ever been flourished in American politics. The advance made in this direction is small, compared to the actual needs of an efficient national organization, and considering the mass of interest and prejudice which it must continue to overcome, it can hardly continue to progress at any more than a snail's pace. The great obstacle to American national fulfillment must always be the danger that the American people will merely succumb to the demands of their local and private interests, and will permit their local craft to drift into a compromising situation, from which the penalties of rescue may be almost as distressing as the penalties of submission. The tradition of an individualist and provincial democracy, which is the mainstay of an anti-national policy, does not include ideals which have to be realized by aggressive action. Their ideals are the ones embodied in our existing system, and their continued vitality demands merely a policy of inaction, enveloped in a cloud of sacred phrases. The advocates and the beneficiaries of the prevailing ideas and conditions are, little by little, being forced into the inevitable attitude of the traditional bourbon, the attitude of maintaining customary or legal rights merely because they are customary or legal, and predicting the most awful consequences from any attempt to impair them. Men, or associations of men, who possess legal or customary rights inimical to the public welfare, always defend those rights as the essential part of a political system, which, if it is overthrown, will prove destructive to public prosperity and security. On no other ground can they find a plausible public excuse for their opposition. The French royal authority and aristocratic privileges were defended on these grounds in 1780, and as the event proved, with some show of reason. In the same way, the partial legislative control of nationalized corporations, now exercised by the state government, is defended, not on the ground that it has been well exercised, not even plausibly on the ground that it can be well exercised. It is defended almost exclusively on the ground that any increase in the authority of the federal government is dangerous to the American people. But the federal government belongs to the American people even more completely than do the state governments, because a general current of public opinion can act much more effectively on the single federal authority than it can upon the many separate state authorities. Popular interests have nothing to fear from a measure of federal centralization, which bestows on the federal government powers necessary to the fulfillment of its legitimate responsibilities, and the American people cannot in the long run be deceived by pleas, which bear the evidence of such a selfish origin and have dubious historical associations. The rights and the powers both of states and individuals must be competent to serve their purposes efficiently in an economical and coherent national organization, or else they must be superseded. A prejudice against centralization is as pernicious, provided centralization is necessary, as a prejudice in its favor. All rights under the law are functions in a democratic political organization, and must be justified by their actual or presumable functional adequacy. The ideal of a constructive relation between American nationality and American democracy is in truth equivalent to a new Declaration of Independence. It affirms that the American people are free to organize their political, economic, and social life in the service of a comprehensive, a lofty, and a far-reaching democratic purpose. At the present time there is a strong, almost a dominant tendency to regard the existing Constitution with superstitious awe, and to shrink with horror from modifying it even in the smallest detail, 
and it is this superstitious fear of changing the most trivial parts of the fundamental legal fabric which brings to pass the great bondage of the american spirit if such an abject worship of legal precedent for its own sake should continue the american idea will have to be fitted to the rigid and narrow lines of a few legal formulas and the ruler of the american spirit like the ruler of the jewish spirit of old will become the lawyer but it will not continue in case americans can be brought to understand and believe that the american national political organization should be constructively related to their democratic purpose such an ideal reveals at once the real opportunity and the real responsibility of the american democracy it declares that the democracy has a machinery in a nationalized organization and a practical guide in the national interest which are inadequate to the realization of the democratic ideal and it declares also that in the long run just in so far as americans timidly or superstitiously refuse to accept their national opportunity and responsibility they will not deserve the names either of freemen or of loyal democrats there comes a time in the history of every nation when its independence of spirit vanishes unless it emancipates itself in some measure from its traditional illusions and that time is fast approaching for the american people they must either seize the chance of a better future or else become a nation which is satisfied in spirit merely to repeat indefinitely the monotonous measures of its own past End of chapter 9, section 2